I'm LZ Granderson, and this is Life Out Loud. When I asked the human rights campaign president, Alfonso David, to come with me to see the Lakers play, you know, it never dawned on me that he wasn't a Lakers fan, or an NBA fan for that matter. I found that out after he arrived at the stadium. It was Pride Night, and I wanted to introduce him to Jeannie Buzz, who is the controlling owner of the team, and her fantastic nephew, Riley, who helped organize the event. This was about two years before the NFL's Carl Nasib would come out, so we spent a good chunk of that night talking about homophobia in sports. That's how brilliant Alfonso is. He's not even a big sports fan, but he can talk about any and everything. And that's exactly what we do on this episode of Life Out Loud. Talk about any and everything. From growing up in West Africa, to pushing for LGBTQ equality in DC, to how he survived once his father disowned him for being gay. My friend Alfonso doesn't hold back on anything, and I'm so grateful that he doesn't. You know, speaking of not holding back, did you guys know that Wisconsin Senator Timmy Baldwin's dating again? And not only that, that a member of Congress, like, set her up? You'll have to stay tuned for the rest of that story later in the show, because first, we gotta talk to my boy, Alfonso. I would like to begin with the question that we ask everyone, really, who joins us here on Life Out Loud. And that is, when did you become aware of something other than heterosexual or straight? When I was a young boy, I realized that I was different. And I realized I was different in that um, I was attracted to boys, I think more so than girls. I assumed that that attraction was something that was shared with all boys. I just assumed that culturally we were not allowed to say anything, but we all thought the same things. Um, so I must have been seven or eight years old when I realized this distinction um, at that point with meaning, but not uh, meaning that I could share. You said that you were sort of aware that you were more attracted to boys than girls. Was it like the boys you saw on television? Was it like the boys in your life? Like, who are these these boys that were seducing you to the dark side? <laughs> <laughs> well, indeed. Nice Star Wars reference. Uh, <laughs> when I grew up, uh, we were not allowed to watch television. Uh, I grew up in Liberia, West Africa, and we had very, very little interfacing with, you know, TV. Uh, we did have an opportunity to see a few movies, and there were three or so film icons uh, for me that I found um, attractive. One was uh, Harry Belafonte. Good move. Uh, the second was Bruce Lee. Very good move. <laughs> that was underrated right there. That's a deep dive right there. That's a nice move. I like yeah, that. That's a deep dive. And the third was um, James Bond. Which one? Sean Connery. Okay. Because if you said Roger Moore, this was going to be over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, Sean Connery. So those were the images that I saw as a young boy that I found um, attractive. And I, I saw those figures as being incredibly attractive. There, there were others, but those are the ones that stand out. And then I thought, well, 
I'm sure my friends who are boys think the same thing, but we're just simply not allowed to say anything. Instead, we are supposed to point to women and girls as, you know, what we would be attracted to. You know, it's so funny along those lines of like youth, what you're referring to. I was talking with my landscaper uh, recently and he was asking me about my Jeep. My Jeep was parked out front and he asked how much, you know, how do I like it, blah, blah, blah. And so I was just telling him that. And I said, you know, I've always wanted a Jeep ever since the Dukes of Hazard because Daisy Duke drove a Jeep in the TV show. And I loved, you know, the ease of it, right? <laughs> And he said to me, you might be the first man I've ever spoken to about Daisy Duke who talks about her car, not her. And I said to him, well, perhaps I'm the first man you've spoken to who actually didn't even know Daisy was in the show because he was busy looking at Bo and Luke. <laughs> and and he kind of stared at me. He laughed because he, he knew I was gay, right, because he had met my husband. But I don't think it actually really crystallized for him until that moment, what that meant. As a kid, growing up, watching television, he's looking at Daisy Duke, and out there in the world is some black skinny kid in Detroit looking at Bo and Luke. I mean, it's, I mean, what you're pointing out is something that so few people fully appreciate for LGBTQ young people. Because when we're growing up, we're watching the same movie, but we're watching a very different movie at the same time. Right. You know, in some cases, when I was growing up, LGBTQ characters were often, you know, the villains, or if they did existed at all, they were killed off. And I've spoken to other LGBTQ people about their experiences, just interfacing with media and specifically film. And as young people, I think, because we didn't see so many images of ourselves, we started creating alternate universes within the films that we were watching in order to validate our identities. That is an excellent transition to you and your adulthood. When did you realize that one, all the other boys didn't think that Sean Connery was hot and two, <laughs> um, found you strange or different for feeling that way? You know, I, I knew that early on uh, because my father was quite a disciplinarian and uh, he made it very clear that if any of his children came out as gay, he would disown them. And I also lived in a country at the time where, and it still is, unfortunately, uh, being LGBTQ was a crime, or at least engaging in uh, intimate conduct between same-sex couples is a crime. So I knew at, at a very early age that my identification was something that I could not acknowledge, certainly not without significant consequences. I didn't realize that there were other people like me until I was probably in college. I heard about other LGBTQ people, but having the opportunity to actually meet them, uh, that didn't happen to me until college. Uh, and then the world opened up I bet it did. <laughs> Once you got on campus. Wait a second. I'm not alone. <laughs> I'm not some alien. Yeah. <laughs> and then the sky opened up. And then I realized that um, the years and years of anxiety and, you know, just some depression, but really a large amount of anxiety uh, could 
you know, all of a sudden be dissipated. How did your father handle the news? Oh, not well, not well at all. Um, you know, my father was um, a traditional West African Liberian man. And I say that um, with a lot of heart. Um, he uh, found out that I was gay based on a conversation that we had um, on a Friday night. He had called me, I think he had a few drinks and asked me why I, I hadn't, uh, I stopped in his mind uh, bringing girls over to the house. Um, and I didn't make any sense to me. And I said, are you trying to ask me if I'm gay? And he said, yes. And then there was silence on the phone. And I said, are you sure you wanna know? And he said, yes. And I told him, and when I told him, it was, uh, it was an avalanche of fear and hate and pain and just anxiety that came out of him. Uh, he followed through with his promise and he disowned me and um, you know, said, I wish you were never born and hung up the phone. And if not for my preparation, because uh, I knew at some point in life, something like this may happen. So I prepared and I became self-sufficient at a very young age. Have you spoken to him since? I did. I spoke to my father after, after I came out and we had uh, very good conversations about philosophy and religion. So I, I just want to be clear. The conversation you spoke of earlier, you came out to him because he asked, but you weren't out publicly. Oh, no, I was not out publicly. This okay. is right after college. This was in the early 1990s. Okay. I came out to him. He disowned me. Um, and members, certain members of my family were also um, uncomfortable with me being gay. Um, and my father didn't really come around until closer to the end of his life. Uh, he, he said something to me that I think resonated. He said, it took you 20 plus years to really acknowledge being gay, I need a little bit of time. And I said, that's fair. I will give you the time you need with the full understanding that I have to live my life at the same time. So there'll be moments where I will ask you to participate in my life and I hope that you will take me up on that opportunity. And he did. I introduced him to the first person I officially dated. Um, it went as best as, as well it could be as could be expected. And, um, and, you know, he subsequently died. He died in uh, 2006. And I, I think seeing me go through law school, graduate from law school, um, uh, receive a, a federal clerkship from a judge, work in a law firm, I think those, those uh, accomplishments in his mind were helpful to him in, um, I think, reconciling this concept that I think a lot of people, at least where I grew up, if you're gay, that means you will not succeed in life. If you're gay, that means you will die. If you're gay, that means something horrible will happen to you. And I think there's a part of him that believed that for a very long time. So seeing me accomplish certain things in my life, uh, I think helped him come to terms with me being gay. You know, I don't need to tell you about the phenomenon that happens to a lot of gay men gay young boys, it's because they feel such rejection that they overachieve in their professional lives to sort of make up for what was lacking in terms of affirmations growing up. 
And so I'm just curious, you know, from your perspective, do you believe that phenomenon sort of shaped your career or was this a passion of yours outside of it? Or if you're even able to tell the difference? I think that will require a fair amount of counseling and psychotherapy, but I will say say that, I mean, as far back as I can remember, I was always an overachiever is what my mother called me. Uh, She called me two things, overachiever and the rebel. Uh, And and I think that you are right. the fear of failing, failing, the fear of being ostracized, the fear of being excluded, I think does drive many LGBTQ people to succeed in large part because we know there is no safety net. LGBTQ people, when we come out, when we face the, I don't wanna call it, in all cases we're ostracized, but, but in many cases we are ostracized. So we have to rely in large cases only on ourselves in the communities that we create in order to not only survive, but to thrive. And for me, I think is a combination of two things. One, always being sort of an overachiever and and focusing on um, how to leave this place better than I found it. And then second, how do you realize the full promise of democracy? How do you, you know, break down the institutions and the silos that have been created in some cases to oppress people like me? And so that for me is part of what drives me in addition to, I think, some of my internal constitution. How was it possible that the United States of America had a black president before HRC? Before an LGBTQ president, you mean? before HRC had a president of color, the country was able to elect a president of color. Look, I I think that the issues of race that this country has been battling with for more than 400 years uh, is so deeply rooted and so integrated into all of our institutions that is going to take a very long time to deconstruct them so that they fully represent all of us. You know, I I think of the landmark achievement that um, President Barack Obama achieved by becoming the president of the United States, um, that he was able to communicate to so many people and that they could see him in representing them. Um, And I also see that the human rights campaign is a microcosm of a larger community that we operate in. And the fact that I'm the first black president to serve in this role, um, I don't necessarily see as direct criticism of the institution. I see it as a criticism of our culture in all institutions. And I'm hoping that as I look forward to the future, um, we can get people to really see beyond themselves because I think that's really the core of it. I think that has been one of the biggest challenges for me operating in this political sphere, in the advocacy sphere, in the government sphere, in the private sector sphere, is that there's so few people who are able to really see beyond themselves, get beyond the politics of the self and to the politics of the community. And I I think we saw some of that with President Barack Obama, and now we've seen a huge regression 
with Donald Trump, where he tapped into fear, and he tapped into rage, and he tapped into division. And it's so easy to say, the reason why you're not able to get X is because of that person. How much of your experience as a black man shapes your worldview in terms of how the organization should go forward versus following in the footsteps of all the presidents before and supporting that work? I came into the organization, a 40-year-old organization that has achieved so many significant groundbreaking um, pieces of policy, legislation, litigation. I mean, there's so many great things this organization has done to advance LGBTQ rights. And I think that I bring a different perspective to this role in that my priority is really driven through a lens of people who are multiply marginalized. LGBTQ people face discrimination. We all admit that. If we are focused on the policy issues that only affect those at the highest level of the socioeconomic uh, uh, ladder, then we're really not getting to the core of why we're being treated differently, right? And, and if we focus on those who are multiply marginalized, uh, the lesbian who is seeking asylum in this country because of persecution in her home country, the black LGBTQ man living in the South with HIV without access to healthcare, or the black transgender woman who is afraid of walking home at night because she might uh, face you know, uh, some type of harm. All of those people have oppression in so many different facets of their lives. And it's because of their race, it's because of their gender identity, it's because of their HIV status, it's because of their immigration status. That place that we call liberation or equality is not achievable unless we focus on people who are multiply marginalized. So to answer your question directly, it is based on my lived experiences, it is based on my race, it is based on the fact that I didn't grow up in this country, that inform how I approach the work and how I prioritize the work and how I view liberation. When you think about HRC in its recent history, I can think about its role in the overturning of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. I can think about its role in marriage equality. What is the defining issue or policy of the Alfonso David HRC? Um, one of the most significant accomplishments, I think, and this is not just an accomplishment of the human rights campaign, but of a larger movement of other organizations, of coalition partners, was to win this past election cycle. Because I believe, frankly, that we were on the cusp of losing our democracy. So I see that accomplishment as being significant. I also see another accomplishment um, focusing on members of the trans and non-binary community and elevating issues that are affecting members of the trans and non-binary community. Right now, we are confronting more than 250 anti-LGBTQ bills that are largely anti-trans, anti-non-binary bills. These are bills that are attacking trans people for being trans people. These are bills that are denying medical care to trans people. These are bills that are saying you can't participate in sports consistent with your gender identity. And one of the goals that I have is to get people to see themselves in a trans person. Maybe you've never met a trans person, but understand that person's humanity. One of the things I would like to do in this role 
certainly not achieved yet, is to get to that point where we can break down some of those silos that have existed for so long. And then another is I was able to obtain the largest grant in the organization's history to really work in combating HIV. Um, one out of two black men who is gay or bisexual will get HIV in their lifetime. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would like to read something that you posted on Instagram not too long ago. Um, that when I read just really stuck with me and I just want to share with the listeners right now. You said in part, quote, at the moment this photo was taken, of course, I was not thinking about my future or my history or the history I could make. But as a young black gay boy, why would I? Where were people like me in the history books? It would be a long time before I learned about Bayard Rustin, Marsha P. Johnson, Sylvia Rivera, Audre Lorde, and James Baldwin, LGBTQ people of color who are also history makers. People who would inspire me to join the fight to make space for people like you and me in this world. That was part of an open letter that you wrote to your younger self, but also to young LGBTQ people of color, particularly uh, those of us who are black. Why did you feel so compelled to share such an intimate and emotional letter like that? I felt compelled to share that letter because if you are black, if you are brown and you're LGBTQ, you're fighting so many different oppressive systems in this country. And often you're not able to see yourself. You're not able to see yourself in the history books. I mean, this is very real today. In several states, they're looking to pass legislation that would ban teachers from teaching about LGBTQ issues without parental consent. That is where we are. So if you're LGBTQ and you live in a state that refuses to allow teachers to teach you about yourself, you may come away thinking that your capacity and your ability to succeed is limited. And it's not. So I, I hear what you're saying and what you're saying makes all the sense in the world. But for someone whose life's work isn't operating in a civil rights ecosystem, and they see the number one record in the country is Little Nas X, openly gay boy, gay black boy. They see a White House that celebrates LGBTQ equality. They see hit TV shows like Pose, um, you know, celebrating diversity. What's are people who see these achievements, particularly in pop culture, what are they not seeing that's happening in everyday life for LGBTQ people? They're not seeing 44 transgender and gender nonconforming people killed last year. The most that we've seen in recorded history. They're not seeing that two thirds of LGBTQ people report experiencing discrimination in their day-to-day -day lives. They're not seeing that the majority of transgender youth uh, attempt suicide at a rate of five times that of their cisgender peers. So yes, we're seeing images reflected that reflect some progress, that show some progress. But the reality is when you leave your home, you experience a level of indifference and discrimination, and in some cases hate, that informs how you think of yourself. 
And that we have to address. 10 years from now, what does life out loud look like for you and for our community? Um, I'm hoping, and this may sound like a, a very low bar, but I'm hoping that LGBTQ people can feel free. We're not free. And when you when someone says, well, what does that mean, free? Free is being able to walk down the street and hold your partner's hand, your spouse's hand, regardless of where you live. Being free is not having to think twice when you book a vacation. Are we going to the right city? Are we sure? Do we have to make sure we bring our materials? Are we gonna get questioned whether or not our daughter is our daughter? We're not free at this point. We still second guess, we still question whether or not we can live in a democracy that says we're free, but the, but the democracy that hasn't realized our freedom. And in 10 years, I hope to see a sliver of that. Amen. Amen. Afonso, David, genius, leader, groundbreaker, inspiration. Thank you so, so much for your time, your energy, your testimony, and your commitment to not just the LGBTQ community, but just being a civil servant and worker in general. Your time in the governor's office, working, fighting for civil rights, like your entire life's work has been about fighting and making the world a better place. And I just want to thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate you as always. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. When Senator Baldwin told me that she was dating, what really blew my mind was that I was so caught up in the history that she was making that I kind of forgot that she was a person first. You know, somebody with hobbies and, you know, love interests and things like that. You know, we do that a lot in society, don't we? Reduce a person down to what makes them famous and kind of forget about all the rest of it. Like, sure, Senator Baldwin is a groundbreaking politician, but it's why she got into politics and her relationship with her grandparents and how they shaped her policies. That's really interesting. Although I will say my favorite part of the conversation may be the part where she tells me that she loves to sew because like, who knew Senator Tammy Baldwin loves to sew? I sure didn't. She's got a lot of layers. Senator Baldwin, thank you so much for spending time with us here at Life Out Loud. And we'd like to begin with this simple question. And that is, when was the first time you became aware of something other than straight? Oh, that's a great question. Um, well, uh, I think it was probably overhearing uh, some adults talking when I was very young. The man who was being discussed was a jeweler. I was hearing 
these adults talk about the fact that he was gay. Um, I don't know if they knew for a fact or if they were just surmising that he was, um, but it was like the first time I heard it being discussed. And was it being discussed in a way that was encouraging for you? Were you discouraged? Do you even think about that in, in those contexts in that way? Um, so these adults uh, had a very favorable view of him. And I guess I heard it as, you know, describing someone who was unique or different but not in any way that um, uh, gave me uh, a bad impression. These were adults who were with it. Even back then in the late 60s, which is probably about when it was. <laughs> I was going to say that is quite remarkable to hear, particularly in the Midwest, a person who is being talked about as being gay is being talked about in such a positive light. Looking back, um, what did I tell you about your upbringing? Well, I would say, first of all, uh, you know, I came from Madison, Wisconsin, so it may be upper Midwest, uh, but, you know, it had a reputation, still does, as a relatively progressive community. So there was, um, you know, compared perhaps to the rest of the state, uh, more diversity, more awareness, probably more discussion about things that might not get as much uh, discussion in, in other places. You mentioned how Madison is sort of a typical, if you will, liberal college town in the Midwest. But the state of Wisconsin, um, it's more purple, maybe even leaning towards red at times when it comes to certain um, aspects of policies. As you're beginning to go into politics, how much of that math played into it about whether or not you could appeal to a broader Wisconsin voter? Yeah, so I started in local politics and was uh, really motivated by uh, the idea that I might be able to work on um, some of the policies that I felt really passionate about, but at the local level. So the first office I ever ran for was the Dane County Board of Supervisors. And I was not the first openly gay person to be elected to our county board. It's, it's interesting because uh, thereafter, it seemed like I was the person who was breaking the glass ceiling. But at that first stage, there were two openly gay members of the Dane County Board of Supervisors, um, a gay man and a lesbian. Um, when I was thinking about running, they were great mentors to me, and frankly, if not for them, I don't know if I would have had the same uh, support in running as an out person, right? You know, right. and so uh, I was so fortunate to have that early uh, uh, mentorship and those great role models. And um, and then you know, once you come out, it, it, you don't you don't put that genie back in the bottle, right? So it, there wasn't as much of a <laughs> I've question. Tried. It doesn't work. I know it really doesn't, and the. Um, and so, therefore, I was running for higher office um, where I was going to be the first and where the question did come up, you know, are the voters ready uh, for uh, an openly lesbian state representative or member of the House of Representatives or ultimately U.S. senator? And um, the answer is no if you don't run. 
so we have to find out what the answer is when you do. And indeed, obviously, the voters were ready. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and I was too. So. You mentioned being the first um, open lesbian to hold these particular offices. But those aren't your only firsts in the state of Wisconsin. You're also like the first woman <laughs> to be in some of these places. Yes, indeed. When you think about all of your firsts, uh, not asking you to choose your favorite child per se, but which history-making mark uh, means more to you? Oh, wow. Well, I, I do have to think about how, um, how meaningful it was to first be elected to the seat that I now occupy in the United States Senate. Because you sort of all the glass ceilings there, Wisconsin had never sent a woman to the U.S. Senate. Um, the United States Senate in its entire history had never had an openly uh, LGBTQ member serving. And so since, you know, 1789 to 2012, that was the case. And we changed that all when I was sworn in in January of uh, 2013. Yeah, there was a lot of doubt, uh, and um, we proved the cynics and the naysayers and the keepers of the status quo, we proved them wrong. And it was very empowering, and I know that it was very empowering for so many who worked so hard to make that day. We know that uh, campaign reform is part of you know the agenda items that you're passionate about, Curious as to how you go about deciding how much bandwidth you dedicate to issues beyond those impacting the LGBTQ community, because obviously the expectation, especially for a lot of us within the community, is that you're always going to fight for us. But that's not always possible, is it? Um, well, it's possible, but we have to fight for other things, too. So, um, yes, I will tell you that the issue that drew me to public service uh, to begin with uh, was health care. Um, I had a situation in my, well, several situations in my own family, but um, <laughs> I was raised by my maternal grandparents. And when I was nine, I had a very serious childhood illness, um, resulted in my being hospitalized for three months. And uh, my grandparents had insurance, but you know the, their family plan didn't cover grandchildren. Uh, that's why I went into uh, public service to begin with. And, um, and then uh, it, this was uh, fairly early on in the HIV AIDS epidemic. And all of a sudden, two major passions and issues in my life uh, collided. Um, and I saw this combination of a healthcare system that needed reform so that everybody had the right to healthcare, and um, and the discrimination that was embedded within it. Um, and boy, I don't even have words for how it was a spark that got me interested in a lifelong time in public service because. I felt so passionately about everything that I was working on. It was very meaningful. Another issue that you're passionate about that, you know, you obviously have close experience with is with mental health and substance abuse. Mm -hmm. um, can you share uh, with the listeners a little bit about 
why these issues are important to you and what you're using your um, your office to do about it. Yeah. Well, this is also a, a story of family. So I, I mentioned earlier that I was raised uh, primarily by my maternal grandparents. And uh, my mother was 19 when I was born. She was going through a divorce. And um, she struggled uh, throughout her life with uh, chronic physical pain, uh, mental illness, and um, addiction to painkillers uh, that were prescribed to her for her chronic pain and um, other types of medications like benzodiazepines that were prescribed for uh, mental health reasons. And it was uh, a, a terribly difficult journey for my mother. And these things don't just impact one person in a family, they impact the entire family. It, it was something as it is today is still surrounded by significant stigma. And um, my mother passed in, in 2017 and I shared our family story. And it was, it was really unbelievable in many ways when people would come up to me in a whispered voice and say, your mom, that's my daughter or that's my brother. So many families in pain, so many uh, folks struggling with substance use disorder. Um, and it led to a lot of action in terms of trying to make available more treatment opportunities to really probably one of my major con uh, contributions uh, in terms of policy was helping uh, retrain huge swaths of the healthcare uh, profession about um, the addictive qualities of opioids. Um, but uh, we have been able to uh, secure research dollars to understand um, substance use disorder better and with regard to opioid abuse, the type of treatments that can help um, block the impact. Um, we have uh, drugs now that uh, reverse overdoses that um, are widely deployed uh, among first responders and family members of users. And so a lot has changed, but I will say during the pandemic, um, we have seen a sharp rise in overdoses. And so it clearly, uh, we're still at the start of this, not the end. You know, as a black person who grew up in Detroit, um, during the crack epidemic, I must tell you that on the one hand, I'm very encouraged to hear um, a senator as well as other members of Congress talk about drug addiction with such thoughtfulness and compassion. Um, but as a child growing up, I didn't see any of that for the people in my neighborhood um, who were addicted to crack or who was dealing with mental health yeah. issues. Um, is Congress more responsive now because opioids seem to be impacting more white people, whereas crack was impacting more people of color and thus not as important? Uh, well, if, if we have systemic racism, one has to say that that would be a factor at least, right? But um, that said, I think uh, a big part of this is that 
it probably is an issue that uh, impacts um, a much higher percentage of the families of members of Congress, right? Just in terms of sheer um, reach of substance use disorder. And, you know, we, let's not forget, you know, alcohol, uh, methamphetamines, and other things uh, beyond the opioid epidemic. They're all related uh, in terms of uh, physical addiction. And um, we know it's also, uh, we're a country that has treated uh, substance use disorder typically through a criminal model rather than a health model. And I think there's increasing uh, views that that has to pivot, uh, that has to change. You know, shifting gears here for a second, recognizing that uh, Senator Tammy Baldwin uh, is involved with a lot of very important policies that consume much of your bandwidth. But I am curious as to what does Tammy Baldwin do to have fun to let her hair down? Because <laughs> it can't be all work. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say a number of things. Um, uh, first of all, I'm dating, and so I have a oh. fabulous girlfriend, and uh, so that's a great way. Is uh, it's a, it's a long distance relationship, which would be the case almost invariably when you're commuting back and forth between Washington D.C. and Wisconsin, but. She doesn't even live in either D.C. or Wisconsin. So anyways, that's probably TMI. No, it's not TMI. That's the purpose of this podcast. Who is this woman? <laughs> How did you meet? Did, were, you, were you like set up? Like, we want to know what is making Tammy Baldwin smile. <laughs> well, I will tell you that uh, uh, one of my Senate colleagues did play a pivotal role in our meeting. I don't think... Uh, well, she might say she set us up, but uh, but I, I, I think it was more coincidental. But it would not have happened without Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. Just well, that's the tease that I'll give you, and then we'll have to talk again later about more details. But, because um, because I also wanted to tell you that I have hobbies, and all all my hobbies um, are relate in some way to making tangible things because making laws you often don't see the fruits of your labor immediately in fact it's really rare that you see the fruits of your labor immediately and so um whether it is sewing which is something that my grandmother taught me uh and, or uh some uh sort of crafty uh, carpentry. I, I like power tools and, you know. You know, you're really feeding into the stereotype with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Um, no, but I but I always have uh, a series of projects. Yeah, so that's, that's a good sampling. So what have you built or sewn recently that you're most proud of? Well, I haven't done as much recently uh, as I might have liked, but I will tell you that at the beginning of the pandemic, I made several masks. I had a lot of scrap fabric, so I, I kind of, uh, you know, went wild for a little while. Um, but I, I'm pretty good when I apply myself to it. And I, my next project is probably going to be a suit jacket. A suit jacket? Wow. Yeah. For yourself or yeah. for someone else? Yeah, for me. You, or how, how would we know this is the suit jacket that was made by you? We want to be on the lookout for it. Well, I'll tell you because you know, if anyone says, if anyone says it's 
oh, that looks nice. Where did you get it? It was like, I made it. You know, I'll scream it from the, <laughs> the rooftop. <laughs> that could be your campaign slogan if you decide to run for president. Tammy Baldwin, she made it. She made it. <laughs> <laughs> and you have made it. You're a history-making badass who is held in such high regard by not just people in the LGBTQ community, but people, you know, from all over because you're so competent and so compassionate. And that's one of the reasons why we love you. And so my question to you is, how do we get more Tammy Baldwins? How do we get more openly LGBTQ people to run for office? Well, um, it's happening. We have a long way to go. There are role models and mentors like I was lucky enough to have in much larger numbers. So that's one thing is we've come a long way, but not far enough. So I think, um, I think one of the things we can all do is um, suggest to uh, our, our rising stars, our, um, our hardworking, community-minded community members, it's like, well, you should think about running for office. And I don't know if anyone's studied how many times uh, somebody who's a member of the LGBTQ community needs to be asked, but asking and encouraging helps. Well, if they listen to this podcast, they just heard you. Yes, run, run. <laughs> Absolutely. Final question for you. In 10 years, what does living a life out loud look like to you for the LGBTQ community? Well, we've made most of the progress that has been achieved by living our lives out loud. You know, there's an old expression uh, from the early days of HIV AIDS of silence equals death. Um, so life out loud, uh, you know, means life, right? <laughs> it's... Uh, and the more people know us, the more people replace their myths and their stereotypes with a slice of what's real, the more direct uh, path there is to achieving full legal equality, but also um, changing hearts and minds. Beautifully said. Absolutely beautifully said. Senator Baldwin, thank you so much for your wisdom, your grace, your service, and your time. Oh, thank you. It's been a great honor. On the next episode of Life Out Loud, I have a sports conversation with three friends of mine. Jason Collins, the first openly gay player in the NBA. Rick Welts, the first openly gay NBA team president. And Super Bowl winner and openly straight ally Keyshawn Johnson. <laughs> openly straight somebody who is openly gay decides that you know what i'm tired of living a certain way in a certain cause and i got too much stress on my brain you gotta have somebody like that somebody has to be active and good and i think if they're active and they're good it'll open up so many doors it'll be ridiculous little did we know history is going to be made soon after we have this conversation as the nfl's carl nasip came out becoming the league's first openly gay player. Stay tuned to hear what else Keyshawn and the fellas have to say about professional sports in the LGBTQ plus community. Life Out Loud with LZ Granderson is a production of ABC Audio, produced by Trevor Hastings. Thanks to senior producers Tony Morrison and Robert Cepeda. What's up, boys? Associate producers are David Toledo and Madeline Wood. 
The executive producers of Life Out Loud are Eric Johnson and Liz Alessi. Special thanks to Mark Anthony Harris Gardner, John Howarth, Kieran McGurl, Elena Genovese Picard, Joel Lyons, Jonathan Fagg, Joyita Bizras, and the Pride ABC and Own Television Stations Employee Resource Group. And a big shout out to Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Russo, Ariel Chester, Ali Yang, Hal Arenal Thiel, Brian Choi, and Stacia Dushisku. I'm LZ Granison. Girl, wasn't that good? <laughs>